recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 12th, I think. Yes, 12th, I'm sorry, 2013. Tonight, I am here again with Sword Brethren, and we are going to um, continue to, to present the material which I had written for Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters in continuation of a response to a couple of articles found in the Free American News Magazine, which Clayton Douglas had taken credit for, but did not actually write himself, and which were written to attack and discredit the Apostle Paul of Tarsus in the eyes of patriotic Christians. Douglas's original articles were published in the December 2003 and January 2004 issues of his magazine. This material, in reply to Douglas, had originally appeared in Clifton, Clifton Emma Heiser's Watchman's Teaching Letter, number 95, which was dated for March 2006. Tonight I have um, Sword Brethren here with me again. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. Brian, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on again. That this material just has to be addressed, and, and some of tonight's material, we're going to see the true heart of the Paul Bashers, and, and it's pretty ugly, and, and it's pretty bad. They just make up stories, they invent things, and, and they're, really looking, they're really looking for anything that they could make stick. In, in, in the eyes of, um, I, I termed it last week as positive Christians, Christians practicing positive Christianity, they want to discredit Paul of Tarsus so that they could tear the whole Bible apart and discredit being ultimately discredit Christianity itself. Well, it's a common tactic I'm sure you're familiar with. Prosecutors use you hit somebody with 30 or 40 charges, and even if two-thirds or nine-tenths of them are garbage and most of them get thrown out, you go with the two or three you can make stick. Well, I've been there. I, I, I know how that is, and that's exactly what they do. They hit you with everything in the kitchen sink, so that they could get you on something. And, you know, the shotgun approach, firing a buckshot, and maybe one or two pellets will hit where it needs to hit. And with this Paul bashing material, even though a great deal of it, it is blatantly, um, blatantly inaccurate when compared to Scripture, that they don't care. I don't think they care. I think they really only wish to come up with the right point to strike the right emotional chord in order to discredit Paul of Tarsus in the eyes of, of, of the people whom they wanted, it, of, of the, the, the proactive, the positive Christians, the patriotic Christians who, who, um, who, who care about Christianity and, and, and their people, their race, their nation. It, it's, they don't care about the Judeo-Christians. The, the Judeo-Christians don't have a chance at practicing Christianity. But but they, they really aim for discrediting Paul of Tarsus and, and with that Luke, the Apostle Luke and, and two Peter and so on and so forth, so so that they could eventually discredit Christianity in the eyes of those same people. Christianity, real Christianity is the only threat in the world to the Jew. Well, that's why they've devoted, you know, centuries to gutting it. Right. When this installment was first published, Clifton Emmerheiser had prefaced it by saying the following. For anyone who is interested in finding the origin of this Paul bashing, they will discover 
it is all coming from the Jews. It amazes me, I'm quoting Clifton, why anyone in Israel identity would fall for such a satanically contrived and oriented propaganda. Yet the Paul Bashers, and, and Clifton's referring to W.G. Finlay, to, to John Spong, and, and by extension to this article by Douglas, the Paul Bashers don't even try to hide it, but name the Jews from whence it emanates. Brushing aside the warnings of our Savior and Messiah to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It is regrettable, but these are victims who have been snake-bitten and glory in it. And that's absolutely true. And, and I could probably name um, four or five Paul Bashers that, that, that are associated with my Facebook account and, and several others who have been in and out of these TeamSpeak programs listening and, and several others who, who are long-time um, Christian identity friends and associates and, and former associates, I should say. And it's sad, but this has infected, Paul bashing has infected, it's a cancer on, on, on Christian identity. Well, that was the original intent, wasn't it, to drive a wedge? Well, absolutely. I fully believe so, and, and it did. It, it did because even in, and, and it's sad, but even in Christian identity, we have a lot of people who are emotional Christian identity, identity believers, and, and they're not logical Christian identity believers who, whose beliefs are based firmly enough in Scripture. They're surface readers of the Bible, and that way they're susceptible to these, to, to these um, cunningly contrived yet quite sophistic arguments. Right. Well, we can't expect everybody to be a scholar, can we? Not everyone's cut out for that. Well, well that's true. Not everybody is cut out to be a scholar, but we're told to prove all things, and, and the individual Christian has to um, at least study enough to understand the underpinnings of his faith and, and what it's founded upon. Christ tells us to found our, build our house on the bedrock so that when, when, when the sand and the wind and the water come against it, it won't fall. It won't be washed away. The Paul Bashers have built their houses on, on loose soil, and, and they're all washed away, as far as I'm concerned. Well, they don't really have a leg to stand on. That's why we're so easily tearing apart this argument, if you even want to call it an argument. Well, well right, and, and tonight's material is actually pretty bad. And I, I read the whole thing ahead, and it's actually a lot of it's pretty bad. The, the arguments from the person who who's articles Douglas reproduces here are pretty bad tonight. Now, now they do get better. There, there are some, um, some more complex and, and more cunningly contrived arguments against Paul based on things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that we're going to see later in the series. Now, now, they are more cunningly contrived because they take advantage of certain language in the Dead Sea Scrolls and very few Christians are going to sit down and read and, and read carefully enough to understand the entire Dead Sea Scrolls. But I did. And um, it was actually this Paul bashing material which helped encourage me to do that back in 2004. 
And um, it, it's, you know, the, the, their arguments based on the Dead Sea Scrolls are absolutely fallacious as well. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are you know, like any other um, voluminous work, it, it, it's, a long, it's a long, dry read. And, and if you're reading it to really understand it and, and, and you meditate upon it and, and study it, it's going to take a long time to do that. And most Christians aren't going to invest that time. I mean, the most you can expect out of them is to read the King James, and that's about it. Right. That, that's the average person. If they even do that. Well, well, most of them would rather read a a, a, um, a Wesley Swift track and run with it, and and just put a, that they put all their faith in in the Word of Man rather than the Word of God. Uh, I mean, even the people that read Christogenia and listen to my podcasts, I pray that they read the Scripture behind me, mm-hmm. and even maybe some of the histories that I quote, and, and read it behind me, and follow behind me, and and see, and, and prove it for themselves. So that, that's the attitude that we should have because it's our faith and, and it's not a joke. And of course, with most people on the street, they're probably just going to prefer to read a novel and watch a TV show. Well, well absolutely. I know they prefer to watch movies and television shows. I'm, confronting, I'm confronted with that all the time. People that claim to be willing to do the work of Yahweh and, and willing to... Um, to, to, to be a, a partner in the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven and they're sitting on their asses at night watching stupid movies and television shows. Or they'd rather um, read a novel about the rapture. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Yes, sir. That's, uh, nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I sure as hell am not perfect. But you won't catch me dead in a movie theater or renting a DVD with some Jew trash on it. That's not going to happen. I'd much rather read the scripture or, or, or work on a website or, or study something or, or spend my time but with more productive things. And, and that's the attitude we should all have. We come out from among them. Come out from among them means get your ass out of the movie theater. Stay away from the DVD rental machines at the supermarket. Don't waste your money on that garbage. Don't watch those sitcoms. Don't watch those cartoons. It's nothing but Jew trash. It, it's, it's Jew trash being pipelined like a sore pipe right into your brain. And, and some people that are aware and, and think that they understand the Bible and Christian identity think that they're impervious to the propaganda, and, and, and they certainly are not impervious. You watch it long enough, and you're going to pick up bits and pieces from it enough to start following in those same patterns of, of filth and disgust and, and, and lies, and, and you're not impervious to it. Even a, soft, even a computer, the best computer in the world, the best operating system in the world, you hit it with enough viruses it's going to have an adverse impact. Absolutely. Well, we left off with Clayton Douglas's article, The Seduction, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, A Different View. That's the official title given to the article that we're covering. 
and all of his ignorant, ill-begotten, and unwarranted criticisms of the Apostle Paul, where Douglas offered a quote from the novelist Thomas Hardy. As we continue through Douglas's article, it may become evident that Douglas has taken to writing fiction, fictions of his own, where he makes all sorts of false assertions, and we're going to see them here. And he offers no citations whatsoever with which to support the phony versions of history that he presents in his paper. So they might as well just call it the rabbis who have inspired and influenced us don't like Paul or Christianity, and you shouldn't either. Well, well right. That's what, if there were truth in advertising, if it was a requirement, then that's the title of the article, right? Reference 10. Clay Douglas states, who is Saul of Tarsus? That is Paul's original name. Shortly after Saul claimed he had his vision of Jesus, he changed his name to Paul. Why? Did Paul seek to recreate himself for benevolent purposes, or was Paul deceiving everyone and his name change was simply one of many indicators in support of this? You decide. And, and that's, you know, I've seen other Paul bashers claim that Paul changed his name in the Bible because they, they take advantage of, of the... Um, I'm going to call it a fact because it's basically a fact, and, and most identity Christians understand it, that the Jews always change their name when they move from country to country, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they always do. They could be in November in Europe and, and, and pop up, and their last name's James in America. Well, well always changing their names and, and using that as an accusation against Paul identifies him as a Jew. It's and, and in the minds of many identity Christians, that that's a a big negative right there when you're a name changer, and and that would be enough to discredit Paul if you could convince people that he did that as he infiltrated Christianity. The truth is, contrary to the opinions of those critics who often jump to such false conclusions, the truth is that Paul of Tarsus never changed his name at any time during the period of his life covered by Luke's account in Acts or by his own epistles. Luke wrote the Acts account, not Paul. Luke calls him Saul 15 times in Acts chapters 7 through 13. And in Acts chapter 13, Luke begins to refer to him as Paul. And so throughout the rest of Acts, Luke tells us that he was Paul. Luke uses the name Paul. But in Luke, in, in Acts chapter 13, Luke calls him Saulus, who is also Paulus. Saul, who is also Paul, as the King James Version has it. Which indicates that Paul didn't change his name. He already had two names. For some reason, and Luke doesn't explain the reason, and he could only be second-guessed, right? Luke called him Saul until he related the account of their engagement with another man of the same name which Paul had. And that man's name was Sergius Paulus a Roman proconsul. Paul, in Greek everywhere, is Paulus, Strong's number 3972, the same name as Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. It's notable that Paul and Barnabas, and, and this 
really has to be understood. Paul and Barnabas had ready access to a man of such rank as a Roman proconsul, which is nearly the equivalent of being the governor of a state. You can't just walk up to the governor of the state and start preaching him a new religion, can you? Uh, I mean, you'd be thrown in a clink, right? Or at the least, you'd be shoved aside by bodyguards. Well, well, right. The Roman proconsuls were were, were equivalent to governors of, of a state, except that they were um, they were appointed by the Roman Senate for a term of two years, rather than being elected as we elect our governors today. So it may be that Luke simply, for some reason, took this occasion, the meeting of Paul and Barnabas with Sergius Paulus, to use the name Paul rather than Saul, because he said, Saul, who is also Paul, in order to show us that Paul indeed had some acquaintance with the man. Perhaps the man was a relative, because Paul had the same name that he did, and because Paul and Luke had, uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas had ready access to this man. Acts chapter 13. It was also not uncommon in Rome for a man to adopt the name of a benefactor. We don't have any any um, indication that Sergius Paulus was a benefactor of Paul's, but we do see that they had the same name, Sergius Paulus and Saul, who was also Paul. He didn't change his name. He had two names. And Luke, for some reason, decided to start using his name Paul rather than Saul. There are all kinds of examples of people in, in history at this time with more than one name, and, and um, we, we don't really have to recount them all here. I mean, as Flavius Josephus adopted the name, he adopted the name Flavius because he, he, he was um, his patron after he was captured in, in the Judean Wars, his patron was Vespasian. Vespasian, and Vespasian's family name was Flavia. So Flavius, jo- Josephus took on the name of Flavius in honor of Vespasian, who, who was his patron, who actually um, saved him from, from imprisonment or execution as, as an opposing general. As we discussed earlier in, in, in this response, Several New Testament figures had multiple names. Uh, I mean, there was Simon Peter, right? And and Peter was a name given to him by Christ. It was a nickname, but nobody accused him of changing his name, right? Certainly. It should also be evident that it was normal for Roman men to have more than one name. We don't have as many records of that among the Greeks, but the Greeks also had more than one name. To criticize Paul for something that Luke wrote is ridiculous. Yet upon examination, it's also plain that there was nothing wrong with Luke's writing. For whatever reason, he decided to start using, to start calling Paul by the name of Paul rather than by the name of Saul in Acts chapter 13. And we really won't know that reason. Maybe as Luke became familiar with Paul, and this is only conjecture, But maybe as Luke became familiar with Paul, Luke started calling him Paul, realizing that Paul preferred to be called Paul rather than Saul. The the address 
the, the addresses towards Saul of Tarsus or Paul of Tarsus are actually um, not familiar addresses in the first several chapters where Saul is used as his name. And maybe for that reason he was called Saul, but maybe he preferred to be called Paul. So Luke wrote Saul, who was also Paul. There's not a problem with that. He didn't change his name because he preferred to be called Paul, and that's the way he signed all his letters. That doesn't mean that he changed his name. He never called himself Saul anywhere. Only Luke did in those first several chapters of Acts. So, so it's a false accusation. It's an absolutely false accusation. And it's one that the Paul bashers, again, try to take advantage of. That they don't, you know, um, that they don't fault Peter. They don't fault any of the other apostles that had two names. And there were several of them. Well, why would they? That's not part of their agenda right now. If they came out swinging against Peter, they'd be pretty well exposed, wouldn't they? Right. In fact, Peter in his first epistle is called Simon. In his second epistle, he's called Simeon, Simeon, which is the Hebrew version of Simon, but it's it's still a different name, technically. They don't call him a liar and a name changer. Right. And, and Paul calls him Petros in some places and Cephas in other places. And the difference is that Cephas is stone in Hebrew and Petros is stone in Greek. But nobody accuses him of being a name changer. Yes. Well, talk shoe. I mean, I haven't been dropped from talk shoe in in I don't know months and months and months, and and now it's four times perhaps in the last two weeks. All right. So when did we cut off? Before I started reading reference eleven. Well, well, yes, you hadn't read reference eleven yet. Darn. Okay. Reference eleven. Clay Douglas states Paul publicly claimed to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He also claimed to be a son of a Pharisee. Additionally, Paul said that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Whichever account you believe to be true does not make a difference. So here we see Douglas is suggesting that all of these accounts cannot simultaneously be true, which there's no reason they can't all be true. He could have been a Benjamin and a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. Well, In either case... Oh, sorry, go on. Well, well, right, but he draws false conclusion, conclusions about the nature of the Pharisees and, and makes yeah. his argument. Douglas continues, in either case, he is a liar. If Paul was a Pharisee, he would have been of authentic Edomite Canaanite stock. Says who? The family bloodline of Benjamin was Shemite, non-Jewish. It was a Saxon-Israelite tribe from the family bloodlines of Isaac through the paternal line of Israel. You can be one but not the other. Pharisee or the ruling Jewish 
Edomite religious and government entity at the time in history did not recruit from Israelite tribes. It was a supremacist clan, an Edomite tribe only. If Paul was truly of Benjamin, southern tribes, Isaac, Israel, then he was lying when he claimed to be a former Pharisee. Well, well right, and the gospel tears them apart on this, right? It, it's right. This, this, there are some incredible lies here while he has the audacity to call Paul a liar at the same time. And he offers not one ancient citation or one iota of historic evidence to support his claims, not one. And, and this is the method of a novelist and not a historian, right? The slightest examination proves to a rational mind that Clayton Douglas is a liar and not Paul. The historian Flavius Josephus discusses the three sects among the Judeans at this time, in the days, of, and he's referring to in the days of the high priest Jonathan, the same man found at 1 Maccabees chapter 12. And at that time, those three sects were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. So those sects had been around for, for um, probably about 160 or 170 years, at least before the time of Christ. Josephus describes these sects in Antiquities, Book 13. This is some years even before the recorded conquest of the Edomites by the Judeans. Josephus describes the three sects in Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 5. And he gives us the history of the conquest of the Edomites by the Maccabees, by the Judeans under the Maccabees, which is recorded in Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9, some years after Josephus tells us that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes already exist as sects in Judea. And, and it's very clear in the historical narrative of Josephus' histories. Josephus mentions the Pharisees and their general, their general opposition to Hyrcanus, and he talks about that at length. So it is apparent that the sect of the Pharisees was prominent in Judea long before any Edomites had the chance to gain serious political influence there in, in large numbers, a situation which did not fully develop until after 80 BC, what was the rise of, of the family of Herod. In Josephus's description of the three sects, which he gives again in Wars chapter 2, um, I'm sorry, book 2, chapter 8, only the Essenes are explicitly described as racial separatists. Josephus tells us that to be an Essene, you must be a Judean by birth, and that that was a requirement for, for entry into the sect. But Josephus never mentions such a requirement among the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Now, in his own autobiography, Josephus records his genealogy and shows that he was a Levite. He was not an Edomite. Josephus then tells us that he was an Essene for a time, but he settled upon following the Pharisees. So Josephus was a Pharisee, and he was not an Edomite. He was a Levite. And he was a priest, and, and he was a general in the Judean army during the revolt 
against Rome. There were other good Pharisees mentioned in the New Testament, Gamaliel and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was not an, an Edomite. If you want to imagine that Nicodemus was an Edomite, then you have to imagine that where Nicodemus has a conversation at night with Christ, which is described in John chapter 3, that Christ was giving private lessons in Scripture to an Edomite. And I find that difficult to imagine. And Nicodemus was clearly a Pharisee. It stated explicitly in Scripture that he was a Pharisee. In John chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus is recorded as defending Christ before the high priest who wanted to kill him. In John chapter 19, verse 39, John tells us that Nicodemus assisted Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was on the Sanhedrin. He was on the council. And he disagreed with the high priests over their intentions to kill Christ kill Christ. And that's explicitly related in Scripture. Joseph of Arimathea was also very likely a Pharisee. Nicodemus, who, was, who we are told was a Pharisee, assisted Joseph of Arimathea with the body of Yahshua Christ and its burial after the crucifixion, as we learn from John 19. So here it should be absolutely apparent that Clay Douglas flippantly spouting accusations and offering no proof to back them up is a liar. The Pharisees are not Edomites. The Pharisees are a political party amongst the priesthood. There were many Israelite Pharisees, and Christ dined with them quite often in Scripture, teaching them in parables and expounding Scripture to them. Would he dine and teach groups of Edomites? That's the question that that, that um, identity Christians should ask when assessing the value of Clayton Douglas's arguments. This is what I meant when I said that the Paul Bashers used arguments which are designed to trigger emotional responses from identity or, or patriotic Christians with the intent to deceive them. The name-changing accusation triggers an, emo an emotional response because most identity Christians see the Jews as history's um, most famous name-changers. And now this um, slander concerning Paul's admission that he was a Pharisee, it, it's meant to trigger an emotional response rather than an, an objective response. Now, the word Pharisee surely does come from a Hebrew word which means to separate. But apparently, in the time of Christ, the word was used only in the sense of religious and not racial separatism. Strong defines Pharisee in his Greek dictionary, a separatist, i.e. exclusively religious, and that definition we could tell from Scripture is not inaccurate. This surely is obvious since the sect existed before the Edomites were absorbed into Judea and Judaism. And they still existed after the, after the, the Edomite absorption or the subsumption of, of the Edomite nation. Christ condemned the Pharisees for traveling sea and land to make one proselyte. Now, that was hardly necessary to find a willing Edomite if the Pharisees were an exclusively Edomite group. 
The Talmud attests that the Pharisees were converting people of all races into Judaism in the earliest times. John Lightfoot's commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud in Hebraica goes into and, and describes that at length in volume two, pages 55 through 63. Clifton has quoted that in, in his own papers. Clayton Douglas is a liar. There is no doubt from the historical record that one may abandon both the Pharisee and of the tribe of Benjamin. There is not, as you said, Brian, there is not a discrepancy there. There is not a conflict there. The tribe of Benjamin, that's racial, and, and, and membership in the Pharisees, that's religious and political. Right, but Douglas wants to make it a conflict where there is none. Absolutely. The Pharisees were only one of several religious sects, and it was quite normal for an ambitious young man who wanted to have a voice in the governance of his nation to join one of those sects. While today we live in a so-called secular society, the sects in Judea were not much different functionally than the political parties of today. Now, it may be plausible that although the Pharisees of the time of Christ were merely religious separatists, since the word Pharisee does mean separatist, and since early on the Pharisees were opposed to Hyrcanus, Hyrcanus was apparently all for bringing the Edomites and Canaanites into the national polity of Judea, and that was his policy, and that's what he did. It's because of Hyrcanus, 125 B.C., maybe 126, that the Edomites and the Canaanites of Judea were folded in and, and circumcised and forced to practice Judaism. And as Josephus says, were from that time forward considered none other than Jews or Judeans, that, that the Jews of today. Now, now it's possible in their early existence, that the Pharisees were racial separatists. But it was not so in the time of Christ, and it's very clear from the condemnation which Christ had of the Pharisees and how he explained that they traveled far and wide to make proselytes to their religion. Point 12. Sure, unless you have some discussion. It seems that in typical Jewish fashion, they're trying to make a conflict or a dispute where there is none. There's absolutely no reason why someone can't both be a Benjaminite Israelite and a member of the Pharisee school of thought or the Pharisee organization. Right, but I see the origin of Paul bashing in Jews who want to make a prey of, uh, of unfounded Christians and, and base their arguments on, on halfway through um, ha halfway true circumstances or, or partially true circumstances and their arguments are gauged to um, strike emotional chords. So those are the sort of people that they would point to someone who's in the Democratic Party and say since almost everybody in that party is a, a dirtbag enemy of dubious origins or they're an outright Jew, that guy has to be a Jew too because he's in that party. Well, right, and, and we know that's not true. And I'm sure Clay Douglas has to realize that's not true, so he's advancing an argument that he knows is patently false, counting on most people to accept it out of ignorance and emotionalism. 
Well, well, that's what I believe. That that's what I believe. That the um, intents of the original Paul Vashers was were, and, and I'm sure I, I'm certain that there's a um, that there's a brother Nazariah he goes by, and, and he fan, he fancies himself the bishop of an Essene church, and, and I'm certain that he's the real author of these articles, but I don't know if I could prove it. I haven't examined enough of his writing, but he is um, a, a critic of Paul of Tarsus. All right. Point 12. Clay Douglas states, Paul Saul was a Roman citizen who was born around the turn of the century 2,000 years ago in Tarsus, Cilicia. The country of Cilicia, or that's Cilicia. Cilicia is the proper pronunciation. I don't know how it's pronounced in the mainstream. I don't care. It's the, in, in Greek, they were K's. They were hard. In Latin, the, they were C's, but the, the, the Romans pronounced the C as a hard letter, not as a soft letter. The soft C, like an S, it is a more modern ecclesiastical invention. The, the original word is colicia. Right. The country of Calicia was located at the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Calicia and the adjoining nations of Syria and Phoenicia on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea were all under the rule of the Roman Empire. The remaining country which bordered the sea on the east was Palestine, which joined Phoenicia on the south. Palestine was also under the rule of Rome. Rome very nicely controlled all of her acquired territory by using native puppet kings who were subservient to Rome. I was about to interject and say, strictly speaking, Palestine was the Roman-backed Herod government in the province of Judea, correct? They, they basically installed him and propped him up as king? Well, well, they installed him and propped him up as king after he bribed Mark Antony in, in about 36, 37 B.C. Now, now the, um, the, they reduced – Judea was a kingdom under Herod the Great. Uh, the, the the Herod that the Jews like to call Herod the Great. I, I hate to call him that, but that, that's his popular name. That the um when he died, Herod Archelaus had taken over the kingdom and according to Herod the Great's will, and the Roman Caesar um agreed to honor that will, but Herod Archelaus was, was such a horrible and oppressive man that he was eventually banished. I mean, his reign only lasted seven or eight, nine years, and he was eventually, if that long, maybe it was six years, and he was eventually banished. I think it was about, I forget how long it was, I'm sorry. It may have been about nine, ten years. He was eventually banished, and, and actually they sent him to Gaul, I think. And um, the the kingdom of Judea was reduced to a province at that time, and split into four tetrarchies. And other heirs of Herod had, for the most part, acquired the, the offices of rulership in the tetrarchies. However, when Judea was reduced to a province, the, the Judean political leaders, first they lost their right to, to try capital cases. That, that's one significant change because that's why Christ um, what was executed by crucifixion and not by stoning, right? And um, had no right to appeal beyond Pilate. And 
furthermore, once it was reduced to a um, to, to a province, a Roman proconsul was placed over it, right? A Roman governor was placed over it. And, and that's why we had Pontius Pilate and, and the other Roman governors. So right. there were legal changes that were made after the time of Herod Archelaus and the reduction of Judea from a kingdom to a province. And I'm a bit concerned that... Law changes. I'm sorry. Douglas, re- Douglas refers to Syria and Phoenicia as nations, and technically that's incorrect. Well, well right, and I discussed that, and, and pro- that, that proves that Douglas really has no, no understanding of history at the time in order to judge and to make any judgments concerning race or nation. He really doesn't know. Whoever wrote this does not know at all what they're talking about. All right. Then he continues, Saul was well-educated and highly trained as a Roman citizen, though he was Turco-Armenian by birth. And I just need to interject here, Turco-Armenian. So because he's from Anatolia, which today is Turkey, he wants to, he wants to refer to him as Turco-Armenian. And, and I have heard I'm, other Paul bashers refer to Paul of Tarsus as Turco-Armenian. And it's well, incredible. It's absolutely incredible. The, the the Turks or the proto-Turks, the Yugers, weren't even on the scene for another thousand years. Exactly. Exactly. So this is absurd. It, it's absolutely absurd, but I've heard other Paul bashers, Ralph Daigle, you call yourself a pastor, you're one of them. I've heard you refer to Paul of Tarsus as a Turco, Turco-Armenian. And it's absolutely ridiculous because the Turks didn't cross the Euphrates for another thousand years. So this is just a baseless slur. He's hoping that he can bank on the ignorance of the masses. Well, well, right, exactly. He goes on, he and his family were well-known Pharisees of Tarsus. He spoke several languages as well as Latin, the language of the empire, and as an aside, is he trying to make a jab and suggest that Paul is some Jewish cosmopolitan who's skilled with language? I mean, he's already conceded that he's well-educated and highly trained as a Roman citizen, so of, of course he's going to speak at least several languages. I would assume Latin and Greek would be the first two that come to mind. Well, well right, but the, the truth is that most people, most people in Europe are bilingual today. Right. And, and most of them speak two or three languages. And I've known plenty of Europeans personally that spoke French and Swiss and German or, or French and Swiss and English and Italian. It, it's it's very common in Europe for people to speak one on one language. It was very common at the time of Christ for people to speak their local regional language, which in, in, in Palestine was Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever you want to call it, and to speak Greek. And all of the apostles spoke Greek. They spoke right, it was Greek, their language. but they also spoke Greek. They spoke Aramaic. They, we, we, we pretend they spoke Aramaic. They called it Hebrew, and they spoke Greek. Now, Flavius Josephus admits having a problem writing Greek. However, when you actually read his writing, he read Strabo in Greek. He read Greek histories. Strabo was never translated into Aramaic by, by, in, in any source I ever known. He read Strabo in Greek. He read um, several Greek historians. He, he right. read Homer in Greek. Now, and, and he quotes from them, and he, and, he, and he makes allusions to them. Now, he had a problem writing Greek, 
and he admits that because knowledge of Greek was discouraged by the Pharisees and because he wasn't as practiced in it. So he had actually written his um, Wars of the Judeans first, and he admitted that he wrote it in Aramaic so that the northern Bob so that the northern barbarians could understand it and the northern barbarians at the time who, who were aramaic who who were were um versed in aramaic were actually the scythians of armenia and sakasane who who were descendants of the saka who were descendants of the israelites of the dispersion and a lot of them were still in that area at that time and he wanted to he wanted them to understand what was going on in Judea. So he wrote Wars of the Judeans first in Aramaic, and then he translated it into Greek. And he had to learn how to write Greek more exactly so that he could translate it. You know, I could read biblical Greek without much of a problem. And, and I could read Koine Greek and, and while well, I translated the New Testament, right? I'm not bragging. It's just a fact. But I don't have much of a problem opening the pages of Josephus or Strabo in Greek and reading a lot of it. I mean, a lot of the vocabulary is um, because vocabulary has to be acquired through usage wherever it's different. I have to look up some vocabulary words, but the form is the same, and I understand the form and the grammar and all that and, and most of the words, and it's not a problem. So, so just because I could read it, and I could read the New Testament Greek, 98% of it without a problem at all and read it perfectly. But, well, that doesn't mean that I could write it. I wouldn't dare try to sit down and write anything of any, of any, um, of any length in Greek because I don't speak it, because it's not colloquial. Yeah, I could read it. I could figure out what it's saying, but I'm not going to try to write it. It, it's, it, it would be ridiculous for me to try to sit down and write one of my papers in Greek. It, it just would, because I, I'm not a colloquial Greek speaker, and, and, and because I'm not practiced in writing it. So Josephus, Josephus read Greek. If you read Josephus' Antiquities, you'll understand that he read Strabo in Greek, he read Homer in Greek, he read Greek, but he explained that he had a hard time writing it because he wasn't versed in it, so he had to practice and school himself in writing it before right. he could write and antiquities and, and, and the Greek version of Wars of the Judeans. And, and that's very understandable. So, so the, apostles, the, the apostles all spoke Greek, and, and they wrote it to varying degrees of difficulty. I mean, Peter's Greek is... It, it, the Greek of 1 and 2 Peter it is tortuous and... and and um, Jude isn't that great either, but, but Luke's Greek, by comparison, is very eloquent. Um, the Greek of Matthew and John are very simple and straightforward, and, and they're pretty easy to read, but, but you could see that they're not flowery and eloquent like Luke can be, right? It's, you, you could tell that, um, that these men had that their writing skills in Greek were definitely a at, at very different levels. And they probably had to acquire some of that before they could write their epistles and, and gospels in Greek. Oh, and just one thing. You mentioned Swiss as though it was its own language. The 
three official languages in Switzerland are German, French, Italian. There is no Swiss language per se. Well, well right, but I, I was only throwing up an example. Most Europeans right. are, are actually bilingual or trilingual. Right, so someone who's in Germany probably speaks, of course, German and then maybe English and French. Right. And that's very normal over there, but Europe's a lot closer together. Well, well, yes, it is, and, and for that reason, they have to. And, and at one time, Germany, the dialects, I, I mean, the dialect in Germany is basically split into high German and low German, but at one time, there were many more dialects in German, and, and Luther's Bible had actually um, been a factor in, in standardizing German dialects, from what I understand. It seems, though, that like I said, it seems implied since people in the Patriot movement tend to understand Jews speak multiple languages fluently that whoever wrote this and that Douglas is, you know, parroting his, you know, putting his name on it. They're trying to throw a jab at Paul about, Oh, he speaks several languages and he was a Pharisee. So he must be an Edomite. Well, well, right. It's another example of, it's another example of trying to hit chords um, amongst patriotic Christians trying to make arguments that strike certain emotional chords and, and that aren't based on, on any reason or objectivity or actual study of the issues. The, the fact that Jews um, tend to adopt and, and adapt to and learn languages rather easily, it isn't really a, a um, it, it's not a genetic trait and it's not and in a, a trait of intellect, what it is is that the Jews have always been internationalists. And because they have always been internationalists and, and merchants, they have always put a cultural stress on the importance of learning different languages. And, and that's why, to them, they value that and, and, and they that they instill that in their children. It's natural. It's a cultural thing. So if, if, I'm, if I'm a Jew and I'm in Amsterdam and my family are all diamond merchants and my father has operations in Russia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, India, you name it, and he says, Oi vey, son, you must learn Portuguese, Russian, German, of course, Dutch, Arabic. He wants me to take over the business, so I have to learn all those languages. Well, well, absolutely, but they yes, they instill that in their children at a young age, the, the importance of learning all those languages, and, and for that reason, it's a cultural advantage that they have when it comes to learning languages, because they value that. All right, to continue on, early in his life, he became a Roman soldier. I'm sure Douglas will find fault with that in the next sentence. And because of his nationality, he was placed in Jerusalem as a key person to both understand and help control the native Palestinians. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is pretty, pretty, pretty um, incredible, right? Well, while Douglas has some of his geography right, Syria and Phoenicia were never properly nations; they were only geographical entities demarcated by the Romans for the purpose of governmental administration separated by the natural boundary of the Lebanon mountains. A nation is properly composed of a single people of a common race, history, government, and language. And it is not a mere 
geographical or geopolitical unit. A government ruling diverse peoples is an empire, and this is true even when the peoples of peoples governed are of the same general race. We've seen that in, in late history with the German Reichs. That the German Reichs, the German empires, they were that their governments ruled over all Germans, but they were still Reichs, right? They were still empires. Palestine was a loose geographic term and never used to generate to designate any particular province. Palestine never generated a I'm sorry, I keep I don't know why I keep doing that. Palestine never designated a, a nation or a province. All of this serves to demonstrate that Douglas has no general knowledge with which to formulate conclusions concerning race and the ancient Roman world. Tarsus in Calicia, according to Strabo in his geography, was originally built by the Assyrians. And he cites an inscription in, in, in Assyrian letters, and yes, the Greeks could write Assyrian letters, can read Assyrian letters, right? Which stated as much, and, and that's in book 14 of Strabo's geography. Strabo explains that the city which occupied the site in Greco-Roman times was founded by Argives. It was founded by Greeks. And while this is shrouded in myth, there is no doubt from Strabo's account that the Tarsus in the first century, the Tarsus is a Greek city, and that also comes from Strabo's 14th book of his geography, from chapter 5 in both counts. The geographer states at chapter 5, section 13 of his 14th book, that the people of Tarsus had devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, Alexandria, or any other place that can be named where there had been schools and lectures of philosophers. So we see that according to Strabo the geographer, who is not from Tarsus, he's not from he has no bone no no axe to grind here. He has no dog in this race. He's not from Tarsus, but he says that Tarsus surpassed, and this is a big thing for a Greek to admit this, a Greek writer, that Tarsus surpassed Alexandria and Athens as centers of philosophical learning. But it is so different from other cities that there the men who are fond of learning are all natives, meaning they're from Tarsus, that foreigners aren't flocking to Tarsus as we see university towns today, right? We had the same situation in the ancient world where foreigners flocked to Athens to attend the schools of philosophy or to Alexandria. It is so different from other cities that there the men who are fond of learning are all natives, and foreigners are not inclined to sojourn there. Neither do these natives stay there, but they complete their education abroad, and when they have completed it, they are pleased to live abroad. So Tarsus is actually exporting its intellectuals, right? And, and that's the picture that Strabo is, is drawing. And but a few go back home. Further, the city of Tarsus has all kinds of schools of rhetoric. And in general, it not only has a flourishing population, but is also most powerful. Thus keeping up the reputation of the mother city. 
referring to Tarsus itself. It is no wonder that Paul had such an excellent classical education. Paul of Tarsus was extremely educated in the classics. He was extremely qualified for the position of bringing the gospel to the dispersed nations of Israel because of his education in the classics. And that's why Paul calls himself, this description of Tarsus is why Paul calls himself a citizen of no mean city. Well, you know, I'm sure Paul of Tarsus could speak more intelligently about current events in America than Clay Douglas can speak about ancient history. <laughs> I'm sure. He, he would know who was behind it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> He'd know who was behind what's happening in this nation, I'll tell you that. Now, Calicia itself, Calicia was originally colonized in, in historical times, right? By the Phoenicians, and, and when I say historical times, I, I mean from our first linear histories down, right, which start really with Herodotus. Calicia itself was originally colonized by the Phoenicians, and those Phoenicians of Calicia originally called themselves Hupakahians. Hupakahians, remember that word. According to Herodotus, Book 7, Chapter 91 of his histories. Now, it should be no surprise that these people should take well to Greek culture and learning, since in Homer's time, Greek itself was said to be colonized largely by Phoenicians, along with the Danans, the tribe of Dan, said to come from Egypt. And Homer called those people Akahians. So Homer calls the Greeks Akahians, and Herodotus tells us that the Hippian, that that the um, that the the Calicians are Hupakahians, and I can't help that that word is the same, right? Except for the prefix, which is um, from the Greek preposition hupo, which means below or beneath. It's I can't help but find that a striking. Um, it, it's not a coincidence, and and it's striking. As George Rawlinson notes in his edition of Herodotus, he says the Calicians were undoubtedly a kindred race to the Phoenicians, meaning the ancient Phoenicians. And it can certainly be established that the ancient Phoenicians were indeed the northern tribes of Israel. Strabo wrote before 25 AD, the year in which he is believed to have died, and only a few years before Paul wrote probably died about 20 years before Paul wrote most of his epistles. To call Paul of Tarsus a Turco-Armenian by birth is utterly ridiculous, since the Turks, an Eastern Asiatic tribe of obscure and mixed origins, did not appear in or west of Mesopotamia for another thousand years. The Turks, invading from further Asia, conquered Baghdad, in 1055 AD and invaded Asia Minor in 1071 AD. This major gaffe alone exposes Douglas's absolute ignorance of history. And he's by no means qualified to write about it. He's not qualified to write about scripture or history. Now, I learned long after addressing Douglas's articles that he really didn't write them. He only took credit for them. So since he took credit for them, he deserves to blame, right? Certainly. I mean, would, would you sign your name to something that it wasn't your work? Well, absolutely not. 
Armenia, too, until the invasions of Arabs, Turks, and Mongols, was a land inhabited by the white races. What Herodotus tells us that the Scythians conquered all of Asia. Strabo identifies them geographically with Greater Armenia, and he identifies Greater Armenia as being a, the, the land of the Scythians in Book 11, Chapter 13 of his geography. A large part of Armenia was called Sakasene. Sakasene, as we learn from Strabo, was named for the Sake who dwelt there, Book 11, Chapter 8 of his geography. Herodotus affirms that the Sake were indeed the Scythians in Book 7, Chapter 64 of his histories. All these things can be cited, right? Clay Douglas throws out all kinds of accusations and never makes a citation, right? Herodotus affirms that the Sake were indeed Scythians, as does Strabo. Strabo makes the same affirmation, connects the Scythians and the Sake. The, the Scythians are the Sake, actually. The Sake, Saka is the Persian word for the Scythians. The Assyrians called them Khamri. So the Greeks first called them Kimeroi because they learned the name from the Assyrians. The Greeks later called them Sake because they learned the name from the Persians. The difference is that the first Scythians that, that the Greeks became familiar with were called Kimeroi because they became familiar with them while Assyrian was the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy in the Near East. Before the fall of Nineveh in the last decades of, of the um, 7th century BC. The later Scythians, the Greeks learned their name when Aramaic was the lingua franca. And Aramaic was the, the, the um, language of trade and diplomacy in both the Persian and the Babylonian empires. So the Greeks called some of the Scythians Kimeroi after the Assyrian Khamri. And they called some of the Scythians Saka, after the Persian word for them. But they were all the same Scythians, and they were all the descendants of the dispersed children of Israel. Well, Sakasene, in, in greater Armenia, as Strabo identifies it, well, well, that would be the land of the cities of the Medes, where the children of Israel were deported from, because Armenia was just north of the ancient cities of the Medes. It was immediately north of ancient Media. And, and they were the first lands that the deported children of Israel had migrated into after the Assyrians had resettled them. Surely the Israelites who were deported by the Assyrians had called one of their first lands Iberia, which Iberia was that land just north of greater Armenia. And they called that land Iberia, just as the Israelite Phoenicians who settled old Spain had first called that land Iberia, because Iberi is Hebrews in Hebrew, which they all were. Douglas is calling Paul a Turco-Armenian at a time when the deported children of Israel, the Sake, occupied Armenia, and a thousand years before the Turks invaded and ever crossed the Euphrates, or, or even rounded the Caspian Sea, for that matter. 
So by the same logic, then, if Paul is a Turk, because a thousand years later that the Turks were all over that area, then it doesn't matter that Douglas might have been born in Arizona 60 years ago when it was primarily white. The place is overrun with Mexicans, so he, Douglas is a Mexican. Well, well, right, exactly. That That's tantamount to it. It's absolutely anachronistic, right? Douglas states that early in Paul's life, he became a Roman soldier. And because of his nationality, he was placed in Jerusalem. And, and here, Douglas becomes a novelist. There's not one iota of historical evidence which can support such a claim. And that's why Douglas, fact, there's, no, there's no citations. Where do you get that from? The historical precedent was to move somebody from as far away as their home province. So if they raised a legion in Gaul, they would station them in Judea or Syria. And if they raised a legion in Judea, they'd move them to Britannia or Iberia. And they would keep them far away. Well, well right. And an entire legion. An entire legion. They would raise an entire legion of Turco-Armenians and send them to the other side of the empire because they wouldn't care about the people there. And, and they would be more um, conducive to following Roman orders, in, especially in times of insurrection, right? That, that's why the, um, the Bolsheviks used Chinese and, and, and Latvian soldiers, right? Right, but he would have us believe that Paul just enlisted in the Roman army as an individual and they assigned him to an already existing legion. Typically, legions were raised entirely one at a time, weren't they? Yes, they were. They were raised from local populations and the entire legion was raised, right, typically. And that's why we see that in Scripture, the cohort called Italian. Why was um, the cohort called Italian? It's in the book of Acts about a certain Roman legion. Well, I would assume they were all raised from some allied Italian city in the Italian peninsula, but not Rome itself. Exactly. They weren't Romans. That, that They were um, native Italians from the, the those first city-states in the Italian peninsula subjected by Rome. Douglas would probably have no explanation for that. The only reason why Douglas knows that Paul's family were Pharisees are from Paul himself. And Douglas chooses to believe some of Paul's statements, and, and then he rejects other of Paul's statements. How does Paul know that Douglas's family were Pharisees, except from the words of Paul himself? And that's hypocrisy. If you're, if you're going to give testimony, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to believe without... Um, any solid indica indication that I should disbelieve anything you say well, without any proof, well, well that's absolutely hip hypocritical. There's absolutely no historical basis for, for Douglas's um, claims here that Paul was a Roman soldier or, or, or anything. It's crazy. It, it's really crazy. There's no historical basis whatsoever. It's a total novel. It's an absolute novel. All right. Point 13. Clay Douglas states, Saul and his Roman troops closely followed the developments of the new Christian cult. So, so now Saul and his Roman troops, what, is he a commander of the Roman legion now? Well, well I guess he, he's going to be the emperor in the next paragraph, right? <laughs> Saul and his Roman troops closely followed the developments of the new Christian cult led by Esu, Jesus, Emmanuel, and Palestine. 
Esu Emmanuel had several close disciples who assisted in his work. One, Judas Iscariot, had become disloyal to the teaching of Emmanuel, and he followed only his desires. When did he become disloyal? Wasn't he referred to as a devil? He, he was the evil from the get-go. Right. He secretly gathered up among the listeners of Emmanuel gold, silver, and copper in his money bag so that he could idly indulge in his lifestyle. Judah Aharioth, whose father was Simeon Aharioth, the Pharisee, observed what Judas was doing and informed Esu Emmanuel of this, hoping to be paid well for this information. Do, do you see Emmanuel, what happened? It's a comic book I'm reading. It's, yes, you are reading a comic book, but this is actually presenting itself as a serious, um, a, a serious exposition of, of of scriptural history, right? So, so th- th- this is serious history. It was just omitted by all, by all the gospel writers. The writer cloned Judas Iscariot into two different people here. The one person is Judas Iscariot. And the other person is Jude Iharioth. <laughs> so he has a different surname from his father. Uh, well, no, whose father was Simeon Iharioth, Iharioth, the Pharisee. Okay, so Judas is schizophrenic then. There, there's one of him that's betraying Jesus, and then the other one in the form of his father is warning Jesus. Well, well right, it's crazy. He cloned Judas Iscariot into two different individuals. That's what he did here. This is a comic book. It's But the Paul Bashers, they take this stuff and they run with it. <laughs> oh, I, I, could start, I don't want to set them out there. I could start naming names of, of Paul Bashers that, that are on my own friends list on Facebook right now. And they take this stuff and they run with it. All right. Shall I resume with Douglas? Yes. Emmanuel thanked him, but did not pay him. Being a man of greed for gold, silver, and other possessions, Judah Iharioth became very angry and sought revenge. Saul of Tarsus was a friend of Simeon Iharioth, and when Saul learned of this incident between Simeon's son, Judah, and Esu Emmanuel, he reportedly arranged for the theft of the scrolls of the teachings of Esu, which had been written and kept by Judas Iscariot. Have you ever wondered why there is such little real information in the New Testament about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ? Judas Iharioth was paid 70 pieces of silver to steal the writings and another 30 pieces of silver to identify Esu Emmanuel at night and his capture with a kiss, a sign of mockery to his enemy. Saul was reportedly personally responsible for the plan and gave assistance in the capture, arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Esu Emmanuel, Saul truly believed that the Christian cult leader, Esu Emmanuel, had been destroyed forever. As Esu Emmanuel, Sananada, had said, Saul of Tarsus was his greatest enemy during his life in Palestine, and even through all of history down to his present day. Let me explain how this came to be. Saul made it his, made it his business to know about any cult or new teaching or idea that might challenge the rule of Rome over the Palestinians. To do this, Paul Saul worked closely with the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish Pharisees. Many scholars have challenged Judas's alleged role in the capture of Esu, claiming that Judas was used as Solomon Simeon's Lee Harvey Oswald in the murder conspiracy plot. What, what? Tune in next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> this is incredible because all of this Paul bashing material from Clayton Douglas started out 
the, the argument started out as sophistic, but, but they were at least loosely based on Scripture, right? And now they're just inventing stuff out of nowhere. That they've turned about halfway through this article to inventing stuff out of nowhere. That, that's exactly what they're doing. And that is how the Paul bashers read their Bible. That they don't care about the truth. That they just make stuff up. They have agendas. It, it's well, like Jews. Only a Jew could write this. I, I mean, this stuff is bad. That this is that this is a fantastic story, which is basically a novel. And, and well, you know what, Bill? I'm sure though, if they expand on this and turn it into a screenplay, that they'll make enough money to you know retire. You know, when they sell it to some Jew in Hollywood, I, I'm sure they make a movie out of this. Well, well, right. But in the meantime, real Christians are falling victim to this garbage, and, and espousing it and spreading it around. And, and it's incredible that anybody could fall victim to this. It, it's trash, but it's done, and, and it has to be addressed, and it has to be exposed as trashed. That the, um, that this, no, none of the claims made here can be substantiated in the New Testament or in Josephus or in any other history. Nowhere can this come except from, from, from the imagination of some bastard. It, it's all made up. Uh, unless you can give a citation, it's all made up. And they can't give a citation for any of this. I know they can. I've never heard of Simeon Iherias. Well, well, I've never read all of the all of the, the available literature from, from the first three centuries of Christianity, but I've read enough of it that I know that all this is made up. Every bit of this is just contrived out of thin air. That they've actually... Um, Douglas takes the name of one single man, Judas Iscariot, in the New Testament Greek. Everywhere he's Judas in, in the New Testament, and either Iscarios or Iscariotes. And, and the difference in the New Testament manuscripts between Iscarios and Iscariotes it is that they're different forms of the same word, but which, due to the use of two different grammatical conventions employed in transliteration from Hebrew to Greek, because the word is actually from two Hebrew terms, ish and kerioth, kerioth being a town that we see in, it, it's in Jeremiah 48.24 and Jeremiah 48.41. Kerioth is a border town with Edom and, and Judea, in southern Judea, and Judah, Judas is kerioth, Iscariot is man of Kerioth, basically, in Hebrew. Well, there's different ways to say that in Greek, and one to, to transliterate that Ishkerioth, and one way is Iskarioth, and the other way is Iskariotes. And uh, different gospel writers employed one method or the other, but that doesn't mean it's two different people. They're the same person. But Douglas's writer has split them into two different people and given them two different names. Douglas takes one man, Judas Iscariot, and he produces two men, Judas Ishkarioth and Judah Iharioth. Just like, um, well, well, at the time when I wrote this, I, I, I compared it to the, the cult of the Raelians, which had... Um, 
claimed to have cloned a human being and, and they were found to be frauds, well, Douglas tried to clone Judas Iscariot and he's found to be a fraud. Douglas claims that Saul had Roman troops under his command and that's a lie. It's certainly evident that Paul had some office or capacity in the service of the Temple of Judea. And the province was, in some degree, autonomous when it came to handling its own internal affairs and the affairs of the Judean people. And, and we see right in the scripture that the, the, the high priests and the temple had a guard. They had a temple guard, and they were Judeans. They weren't Roman soldiers. They were in the employ of the local authorities in Judea and answerable to them. And, and the high priests and, and, and the tetrarchs could punish criminals and, and violators of local codes, such as the Mosaic Law, but they couldn't try capital offenses. That was, they were prohibited from doing that because of their status as a province. And, and that's why Christ was executed by crucifixion and not by stoning because he had to be tried under Roman law for a capital offense. And the gospel states that explicitly. That now the, um, there's no indication at all anywhere that Paul was acting as a Roman when he was persecuting Christians on behalf of the temple authorities in Judea. He was not acting as a Roman. And if he was acting as a Roman, he'd have been found in violation of Roman law. He couldn't be acting as a Roman. And there are many historical citations in Josephus, in Tacitus, and in other historical works that show that the Roman um, soldiers did not have the authority which Douglas attributes to them here. They did not have the authority to harass local citizens or, or enforce Roman law against local citizens. They didn't have that authority. That, the, the proconsuls had that authority. Earlier in this um, presentation, and, and we presented it last week, I believe, Douglas claimed that Paul never met Jesus in the flesh. And Douglas claimed that none of the New Testament writers actually knew him in the flesh. Douglas made that claim in section 6 of, of, of the way that Clifton and I had split his article up in our, for our presentation. He claimed that Saul Paul never met Jesus in the flesh. In section 7, Douglas claimed, of personal knowledge of Jesus, Paul had none. Now here, Douglas states that Saul was reportedly personally responsible for the plan and gave assistance in the capture, arrest, and trial, and crucifixion of Isu Emmanuel, which is the name that he uses to describe Christ. And that's it. Well, which is it? He can't have it both ways. He can't have it both ways. It shows you that there's no intellectual integrity in Paul bashing. The Paul is dishonest. It, it's absolutely dishonest. We found Graeber to be dishonest. Douglas is ten times more dishonest than Graeber was. And, and he calls Christ, he, he gives him his name Sananda. Where the hell did that name come from? How, how does he call him that? 
Did, well, when you're inventing stuff, why not just invent more stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this is the um, the, the this is the, the extent of the intellectual integrity of Paul bashing. It's zero. There is no intellectual integrity at all. He contradicted himself all throughout this last paragraph. He contradicted even all of his own accusations against Paul of Tarsus earlier in this in, in this same article. It's incredible. I would challenge the Paul bashers, any Paul basher listening to this series, I would challenge you to come on here and give me logical and 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 sane and truthful arguments that can be formulated against the, the um, credibility of Paul of Tarsus from Scripture. There aren't any. You'd get, well, you'd get a further challenge from Noah fight. Well, well, right. And, and I'd go that route, too. That there's no, that, that there is no um, honest intellectual basis for challenging the ministry of Paul of Tarsus in Scripture. The, the Paul bashers can't come up with it, so they have to resort to all sorts of lies. And identity Christians have to know that Paul bashers are not Christians. And they're liars. All Paul bashers are not Christians. They're liars. And they resort to to this trash. And when you, well, when you take up Paul bashing, you basically are doing the work of the Jews who, who de- developed this trash. And I hope some of the people that I know are Paul bashers that I know listen to a lot of my programs. I hope they're listening to this series. And I challenge them to come. If they think that their Paul bashing is better than this garbage, I challenge them to come talk to me. I dare them to come talk to me. Now, this, is gar- this garbage is why Douglas has no sources. He doesn't cite any sources for any of his accusations, for any of these supposedly... Um, historical secrets, these great revelations that he has about the first century and, and the gospel of Christ, he doesn't cite any sources. He, okay. says here, here he claims that um, there existed scrolls of the teachings of Christ. And, and we're going to address that shortly. But, but as Douglas stated earlier in the same article, he said there are no known writings from Jesus. You, you mentioned the term Sananda. Sananda, I've looked it up. It's a New Age name used by New Age groups to refer to the resurrected Master Jesus. And here's a website, Sananda Channelings. Master Sananda, the cosmic Christ, was a Chohan of the Sixth Ray, blah, 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 brotherhood, peace, patriotism. This is all some New Age garbage. So, so Douglas, in, in his own article, he reveals himself as a circus freak. <laughs> Well, he, he's using the word. I didn't make him use it. Well, well, right, but he printed it. Right. He, so he, 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 he had to come to a knowledge of that word somehow because it's in his vocabulary. Well, well, he printed it, so he's blamed for it. He's a circus freak. And a blatant liar. Yeah, you know, when one uses terms which aren't generally known, when, when you sit down and write an essay and use terms which are not generally known, or which can't be found in, in, in common dictionaries or lexicons, such as Isu or Sananda. One should define the terms and also identify their sources, right? Uh, I mean, to do that is scholarly. And, and one not doing so may be perceived as having 
as being a creator of fictions. Clayton Douglas wow. has created fictions here with, with his name Isu. Well, where does he get that from? Where does he get the scrolls of the teachings of Jesus from? Well, when one relates historical events to cite sources which attest to those events as scholarly, and it's a necessity when the events aren't generally known. And, and, and if you don't cite your sources, you're just making things up. And any academic or scholarly audience would, would accuse you of that. So, so it's a novelist. If I'm not mistaken, in the Murphy translation, Murphy explains what Weltanschauung means. He says it means worldview, and he explains the, the basis for the term in German. He doesn't just throw out the word and leave the reader to figure it out for himself. Well, well, right. And when we write, that, that's, that, that should be our practice. Well, when we use terms that, that are alien to our audience. Right. But now, if this clown were to write that Sananda comes from some esoteric, Far Eastern, channeling Mahatma, master of ancient wisdom, new age religion, he would look like a crackpot. Absolutely. And that's what he is. He just doesn't want you to know he's a crackpot. Well, well, absolutely. But but I, I would challenge the, the Paul Bashers, if they could do better, let's get at it. But this is, you know, Clifton was told by several of his readers, and, and that's why we address these arguments, that this stuff that Clayton Douglas published was among the better arguments presented by the Paul Bashers. These are their better arguments? Yes. That this was the better material coming from Paul Bashers. And it's horrible. And, and it's all lies. Okay. Well, we should probably leave this here and... and um, Come back next week with part nine. It like you said, how, can, how can one debate fiction if you tell me, oh, on page 12 of issue nine of Spider-Man, this, that, and the other thing happened. Well, how can I say it didn't happen? I mean, it, it's fiction. It's all made up. It doesn't well, matter. Well, well, right. And I actually, uh, I, somewhere in this Paul Bashing material, I, I made that profession that, that, that it's hard to debate a, fic a fiction. How do you debate a fiction? How do I how do I debate you if you're just making stuff up as as we have our discourse? Right, or if you, if you want to cite pages from a novel to back up your case, it's kind of like debating Jim Condit about uh, about Adolf Hitler. The, the man just makes things up and 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 um, attributes them to Jewish sources and and swears there's nothing wrong with quoting Jews. How do you debate that? Well, well, you can. It's impossible because he just makes they just make this stuff up. And that's my endeavor here is to show that there's no intellectual basis for Paul bashing. There's no scriptural basis for Paul bashing, none whatsoever. It's it, it's it's a disease. It's a cancer in identity Christianity. If these are some of their better arguments, whew, I guess the Graber stuff was the lesser argument. The Graber stuff was more of the amateur novice, and now we're moving on to the heavy hitters. I don't really have a whole lot to say about these people. There's not much to what they're saying. Maybe um, one of these weeks, uh, there's a post on the Christogenia forum that I made in 2009, July 31st, 2009. 
And in this Christiania Forum post, it's entitled, Do Not Be Deceived, Paul Bashers Are Not Christians. And in this post, I'm addressing the, the um, I've called her a whore in the past. I don't repent of that. The woman who calls herself Athena, who is a friend of um, Charles Vaught and Scott Vaught and Russell Walker and, and um, Buddy Johnson. And, and they're, they, can, they consider themselves to be Christian identity. And I just don't, I just haven't figured out whose identity. But, but they're all Paul Bashers, the, the whole school of them. And, and they actually live not too far from here. In, in um, not too far from where I'm located now, in, in um, the the parts about eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina, and, and they're all Paul Bashers, and and I should read that letter perhaps um, on one of these segments. So. And, and that was my address to them, being Paul Bashers, three years ago, four years ago almost, and and they're not Christians. Paul Bashers are not Christians, not what's not at all. Not only are they not Christians, they're they're not intellectually or academically honest, and they're not consistent within their own works. They're hoping when you get down to point twelve or point fifteen, you forget what they've written as point one, point two, or point three, because point three doesn't match up with point fifteen. Well, Graeber often contradicted himself, and and Douglas is a lot more blatant about it. The Douglas material is full of blatant contradictions. I would expect an essay to at least be internally consistent. Well, well, it should. Whether it's lies or not, the, the lies should be internally consistent, yes. But, I mean, maybe he has another essay out there that contradicts, you know, essay A contradicts essay B, but I would expect the opening paragraph of essay A not to contradict the closing paragraph of essay A. Right. Two other Paul Bashers, two other Paul Bashers are, are um, Judy Nips and Nellie Babs, and one of them, from what I understand, is a, uh, a former wife of James Wickstrom, who, who went off into Paul bashing. It, it's, this is all throughout Christian identity. Hmm. And, and they deserve to be mentioned. But there's others that are closer to me that I'm hoping, uh, I haven't mentioned them yet because I'm hoping that listening to this series, that, that, that they wake the hell up and repent. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, unless they think they have better arguments that, than Clay Douglas and, and Graber and the rest of those clowns, and, and they could come on here and, and exposit them in, in honest terms with citations from Scripture. But they're asking too much. Well, well, yes, of course it is. But they have that challenge is open. Jerry Kirk, Ralph Daigle, any of you clowns, you Paul bashing clowns, want to come on this program and talk to me about politics, you're more than welcome. But you better have honest, logical arguments, be willing to listen to the answers uh, as we discuss them, and, and, and you better have citations from, from real books. Well, the Talmud's a real book, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah, I suppose it's a collection of uh, real books, some really evil books. So you might have to. You might want to be careful when you tell them that they need citations from established historical books. Well, well, that's okay. I can handle citations from the Talmud. It would just prove where they're coming from, wouldn't it? Well, well, exactly. Isn't that ultimately what they're doing? Though they're bringing all this right out of the Talmud. They're just not sourcing it to the Talmud. They're sourcing it to some Episcopalian kook who was inspired by a rabbi. 
Well, well, right. They they get their sources from the faggot-loving John Spong, from the Jew Joaquin Prince. They get their, their their information from people like that, and they run with it. And and they admit it, as Clifton said in 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 the preface to this material that we're discussing tonight from Clay Douglas. They admit W. G. Finlay, that the South African identity preacher, admitted getting. The, his critiques of Politarsis from the Jew Jacqueline Prince. He admitted it. it it's so it's insane. Well, can you say to someone after that? I don't have anything for him. Clay Douglas admits getting his his critiques against Politarsis in this article from John Spong, and when we cover John Spong, it, it's it's established fact. And you read some of the titles from his books last week. It's established fact that the man is a sexual deviant and a lover of Negroes and, and every unclean beast. Of course he hates Paul of Tarsus. I would expect him to hate Paul of Tarsus. The, the man would have a serious um, cognitive dissonance if, if he liked Paul of Tarsus, because Paul of Tarsus is the critic uh, of all of those sexually deviant acts. Beyond that, John Spong, he wants to disregard the entire New Testament, and he says that none of those miracles actually happen, that it's all just a metaphor. And he also teaches that there is no objective revealed standard or truth in the scriptures, and that there's no objective morality for, for um, you know, governing and guiding ethical behavior. So he's a moral relativist. And moral relativists have no place in Christianity. They belong in the Mishnah. They don't belong in the New Testament. So he, he should go to some yeshiva or wherever Jews go to debate the Talmud, and he can make his addition to the Talmud and argue with all the other rabbis about case precedent. Well, well he's more than likely found in a bar after hours in Greenwich Village <laughs> with the rest of the Jew bastards. And half the rabbis. Okay, thank you for joining me tonight. We'll we'll probably be back here next week with um, Against the Paul Bashers, Part 9. That This is going to be a long series. It'll probably run at least 15 parts. I, I don't know if it's going to run longer than that. It'll run longer than that if any of the modern Paul Bashers in identity Christianity had the balls, and I'll say it just that way, to come here and discuss Paul of Tarsus with me in a civil, academic manner. And I doubt if any of them do. They won't be here. Well, we'll see. Ralph Daigle, he still reads my mailing list. Jerry Kirk, that, that we know people in common. They think he's a clown, too, but... Um, I, I don't want Russell Walker on here. He's just a, he, he's just a dirtbag. He, he's, he's a diversion. There's a write-up on him on Zogbots. That's where he belongs. Zogbots.org owns Russell Walker, and that's where he belongs. But Charles and, right, well, Vaught, Charles and Scott Vaught are more than welcome to come here and talk about Politarsis. They're Paul Bashers, and, and they're Ephraim Skepter heretics. And, and Can we track down Graber? Or is he busy working on another PhD? Well, well, I don't know if he's alive. I don't know that that um, his Paul bashing material was published in in the very early nineties, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if he's still around. I really don't. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you, and and um, praise Yahweh, and and thank you for listening. And and um, I don't know if this program tonight was the most informative Paul bashing 
segment we've done, but perhaps something good will come out of it one day. Well, I think we're showing that these people have no command of language. They, they make so many disgusting errors that they, they can't be taken seriously as scholars. They don't proofread their work, especially Graeber. They don't even know the most basics about history. They refer to Phoenicia as a nation. They refer to the Palestinians. If I'm not mistaken, the, the Romans never referred to the people in Judea as Palestinians. So that they make various minor and moderate mistakes when then you combine it with their lies. There's no way you can take these people seriously as scholars of either theology or history. Well, well right. There were no people called Palestinians specifically. There, there were Phoenicians of Palestine. There were Syrians of Palestine. There were Judeans of Palestine. That they were not Palestinians. That they just didn't exist. It's um, Phoenicia was a political demarcation in Roman times. It was never a nation. Syria was a political demarcation. It was a place that was inhabited by people of many different tribes and and what which were considered to be nations and not a ethnically homogenous state. It's ridiculous, you know, to 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 um, get so much about the the ancient world wrong and pretend to be a a um, a person who who can judge matters in the ancient world. But I, I mean, it's ridiculous. If you don't have any foundation at all in in ancient history, you don't belong as a commentator on ancient history. It's that simple. They must have the secret scrolls though that no one else has because they know all about. Simeon Iscariot. Well, well, right. That, that, they, right. Yeah. It's it's just sick. It, it's um. It, if you're going, it, it's common academic practice that that if you're going to make statements which aren't generally known, that you give citations. And if you're not giving citations, then you're a novelist. That's what novelists do. That, that's it's a work right. of fiction. Clayton Douglas quoted Thomas Hardy as a critic of Paul of Tarsus, and Thomas Hardy's a novelist. Didn't they also quote George Bernard Shaw? Was that Graeber that did that? Um, both of them did that. They both quoted George Bernard Shaw. Graeber and um, Douglas. So, so that they should that their sources alone discredit them. Well, are they going to quote Trotsky and Stalin next? <laughs> How long do we have to wait? That they may as well. Okay, we'll be here next week. All right, and this that, this that this series will have its high points yet. Praise Yahweh and thank you for being here. Good. Night. Praise Yahweh. I will be here on Friday night. I'm not sure what I'm going to um just what I'm going to present on Friday night yet. Uh, I'm considering a couple of the minor prophets. I have to sit tomorrow and do some reading and and make my mind up probably by Monday, and and it'll be on the event schedule on Christagenia when I do make my mind up. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening and good night. Good night.